Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca. To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards, and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in the unceded Stalo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of great dreams. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. I'll be your host, Joshua. And today we have a special guest on our podcast, and it is Kathy Wagner. Kathy is a writer, writing coach, and mother of three grown children, including her son, Tristan, who died from fentanyl poisoning in 2017. Her personal essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, the Sun Magazine, and she is the author of Here With You, a memoir of love, family, and addiction to be published on September 9th of this year. And you can find more about Kathy at kwagnerwrites.com. So thank you so much, Kathy, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So you've had a huge tragedy in your life with your son dying in 2017. I was just wondering if you could go through your story a little bit on how that was. I know he died from a fentanyl poisoning. And if that was the first time he maybe used drugs and he died from it, or if it was a journey for him. Yeah, it was very much a journey. You know, Tristan was a very sweet, sensitive, empathetic child. And and that continued. And I think when he hit the teenage years, one of the things I think he found was that using drugs just made him feel better for a while, for a period of time. And by the time he was 15 years old, he was in active addiction. So he struggled for all of his teenage years with addiction. And I struggled with trying to find ways to help him. And there was not much that I could do um, in the early years of actually in any of the years, there was not much I could do about it. You know, for a chi- even a child at 15, he needed to give consent to go into any sort of treatment, which he did not. You know, the one thing he always loved as a child was martial arts. All my kids were involved. I have two older daughters as well. They were all involved in martial arts. They all got their black belts early. And Tristan had always wanted to be a martial arts master. So when drugs were t- starting to take over his life and I wasn't able to get him any help related to that, I ended up taking him to China um, to study Kung Fu with Shaolin monks for, um, he was there for almost a year and a half. So he was there for the entire year that he was 16. I spent the first five weeks with him and then left him there for a year with this most amazing uh, Shifu, which is master of Kung Fu. Um, so he studied there for a year and was got very healthy, came back, returned to drugs, went back to China for another six months and came back and and returned to drugs. Then he, he was all, you know, Tristan was a very passionate person as well. Like whatever he did, he threw his whole self into, whether that was, um, you know, martial arts or drug use, or then he went to culinary school and did exceptionally well and was working in some of the best restaurants in, in Vancouver at Hawksworth. And, you know, he, he really had aspirations of being a chef. He had got, you know, he was winning awards. He was doing great work, but his addiction yeah, you know, ultimately took over. So, you know, to the point where he was unable to work, he was unable to 
be housed. He was unable to function really by the time he was 20. So he did end up going into uh, recovery treatment. Thank goodness. So he spent the last 14 months of his life in recovery, and he embraced that with the same passion that he did everything else. So he was wholeheartedly invested in his recovery and in helping others in their recovery and in sharing his story and in doing, you know, whatever he needed to do to be well, he wanted to be well. And he, he took so much pride and joy in, in helping others, you know, but relapse was part of his story. So he never made it six months in that time. Um, he had one serious relapse where he was out for about six weeks. And other than that, it was, you know, a period of, um, you know, he was sober for a couple months and then he would go out for a couple of days. And increasingly it got the frequency of his slips became closer together. I think he had started to lose, um, I don't, I don't think he lost hope necessarily, but maybe he did to some degree. He just kept kept seeing himself slip and it was frustrating for him. And then his last slip was just about six years ago, six years ago next week. Yeah. And then he um, died from fentanyl poisoning. In that, in that period of time, as I, you know, I mentioned, I have two other two daughters, both older than Tristan. My middle daughter never struggled with addiction issues whatsoever, but my older daughter did as well. So when Tristan was in recovery, he actually brought my older daughter into recovery. And because of Tristan, she embraced recovery, went into treatment, and is now over six years sober with both her and her husband um, are both. Yeah. So, uh, you know, she she credits Tristan for bringing her into recovery, for meeting her husband, for um, being able to be the mother that she wants to be for her daughter. And it's beautiful that he could do that for her. But yeah, there's, there's some struggles. And what have you learned about being a parent in this situation like i can't fathom how difficult it would be because i'm thinking there must be some anticipatory grief of thinking that like any time they relapse or any time that they use like death could be approaching them yeah there's there is so much that i learned and you know as far as parent being a parent of a, a child in addiction what i did learn is that there's no there's no right way there's no wrong way if you can do the best that you can and do it with love then you are doing you're doing all you can there's absolutely it's not even just anticipatory grief but there is grief in parenting a child in active in deep active addiction because you have lost the potential for your child in that moment is gone right you know i mean you can still have hope for them for the future but right now they are not the the child that you know that they are on the inside and you grieve that terribly and it's not the kind of grief that you can share with others because your child is still there and a lot of the time, a lot of people around you don't even know the seriousness of the addiction unless they're homeless on the streets of downtown Eastside, which Tristan never was. People don't know uh, what it's like to parent a child in addiction. They don't know the grief that is involved, let alone the fear. And um, yeah, it's it's constant, constant fear. And it's one of the things I will be forever grateful to tri for Tristan uh, to Tristan. Four is when he embraced recovery, it did actually bring recovery to our entire family and particularly to me. I was as invested in him as any mother can be, you know, to the point of excluding myself, excluding my other children, excluding uh, interests. Like I, I had no interests in my life other than work, which was a way to uh, give me some sort of control and success. And then 
and then Tristan and trying to manage him and his addiction. So during the process of his recovery, I began what I consider my recovery journey, um, which is a finding my way to myself, regardless of what my children are doing or not doing, regardless how well they are doing or not doing, and regardless if they are alive or if they are dead. And that's something that I was very aware of when he was even still alive, is that I needed to create you know, my my children's lives. And at that time, because I had two out of three of my kids who were in addiction, and my third child has some significant health issues. So all of my kids have challenges that create fear for me. So I became very aware that I needed to stay in my lane and my lane was myself. And I needed to find a way to um, find a fulfilling, purposeful life of joy and fun and, you know, fulfillment regardless. So that's what that's what my recovery journey was like. And I was fortunate to have had, you know, I've been working through that for a period of time before Tristan died, because I think if I, if he had died at a point when I was still so embroiled in his addiction and trying to save him, trying to, con- not that I wasn't trying to say, I was always trying to save him, but less actively, I guess. I don't know. It would have been a very different experience for me. I wouldn't have had the tools to be as resistant. I don't even want to say I was resilient in grief because I don't know that, you know, I didn't feel particularly resilient. I certainly felt shattered. And I also know that it would have been a whole lot worse if I didn't have the tools on hand that I had. It's very interesting that you noticed that and you took steps to try to understand yourself and understand sort of where you're getting caught because you said you can't change what other people do. Like you don't have that kind of power but you have the power to change how you think and how you respond. And I think that has power to change the people around you in many ways. And so I was curious how, like, what kind of tools did you use or what did you, I guess, yeah, what did you use? What did you find out by doing this? Yeah, you know, I think my my most well-used tools were things like gratitude and acceptance were probably the two biggest ones. So gratitude was something I could practice regularly. And it's hard to hold fear and gratitude in the same space. So in in the times when I was being particularly fearful, if Tristan was relapsing, for example, I would focus on what am I grateful for? You know, what, what do I have in my life? And I would struggle. Actually, I did that there's a scene about that in my book and I'm like trying to find things and I'm grateful for my cat when it purrs on my head or you know my my granddaughters you know it's hard to be in a physical state of fear because it is you know it manifests in your body and it's hard to physically feel that fear when you're actively feeling gratitude and then the other the other big one was acceptance and there's so much depth in acceptance and there's so many layers to it so I had to accept that Tristan was at risk. I had to accept that all of my children are were at risk and are at risk in different ways. Um, but I also had to accept, I had to learn to accept that Tristan was perfectly fine the way he was. You know, Tristan struggled with um, addiction. He also struggled with ADHD, um, extreme sensitivity, depression at times. And all of that actually was okay you know, in in that this was his to work through. And it didn't mean he was going to like, it didn't, he didn't need to die. That wasn't necessarily, that wasn't part of his path, right? There's lots of people with all of those conditions that live wholehearted, beautiful, meaningful lives. And they're the ones that spend the time, you know, learning how to live with that, right? And you can, you can learn how to live with all of those things and be well, you know, not in active addiction, but you learn how to manage those, those feelings, those, like you said, the thought processes, the feelings and the behaviors. And through learning to manage those things and live with them 
in a way that is healthy, I think you can become stronger. You certainly can be of tremendous service and value to others who are still struggling. And so what I learned through acceptance was that, you know, if I could accept those parts of Tristan, I could then see the strength that he was developing in working through them and learning how to live with them and be sober and healthy. And I could acknowledge the effort that it took, right? So many people believe, the, and, and I did, and actually I do in this book for a large part of it, you know, Tristan, you separate addiction from the child. So my child was truly the sweetest, most thoughtful boy you could have ever met. And he was hell on wheels in some ways in his addiction. So it's easy to separate them. Well, him, him and his addiction is not Tristan. And right. And that's true to some degree in that it was not who he was in his um, innermost self. It was not a re representation of who he was. And yet that was his experience. He was the one who was in his body doing these behaviors of addiction. He didn't have the luxury of separating himself from his behaviors or his thoughts or his feelings. So they were integrated in him. And I can't, I, you know, I get, I got to the point where I, I acknowledged I wasn't going to separate that from him, that it was part of his experience here and that it was part of the experience that was, you know, he was developing a tremendous amount of strength and compassion for others because of it. That's really interesting to sort of think about when you sort of talk about sort of the gratitude and acceptance and, and how important that is. And I could definitely see that would be important within the grieving process after he has died. Because I've heard a lot of people sort of talk about that also. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little about, you know, just, you know, being bereaved and what that really felt like when it occurred. So I know you wrote a book about it. So I know you're beyond the initial like acute stages. Um, and you yeah. want to sort of share maybe some of your teachings and learning. So I'm just really curious what your experience is like. Yeah, it's a it's a journey. It's like every, you know, every day is different. Every day continues to still be different six years later. But there's certainly patterns in the early acute phases. I was I just wanted to run away. I didn't want to be around people. I struggled with being numb, just very, very, very numb. And I remember one conversation I had with um, a group of friends who were extremely important to me. And it was probably, you know, a week or 10 days after Tristan passed. And I saw them for the first time. And there's four or five of them and, and they were kind of wrapping themselves around me and it's like, it's okay to cry. And it's, you know, I'm you, you must be bawling every day. And I was like, no, I, I really only probably cried a couple times. Like I, I just, I don't, I don't feel like crying. And they were, they were like shocked. It's like, and they didn't know what to say. Then it got super awkward. And one, and, and one of, one of the ladies thankfully said, you know, he said, that's your body protecting you from the pain. She said, you will feel it. It's okay. You don't need to feel it all at once. It will, it will come. And I felt so grateful to hear that because up until that point of time, I literally felt like what is broken in me? Like I'm hardly crying and my son just died. And how can that even be? But I was so, I was so numb. I just could not, I could not let myself feel. And until of course I did, <laughs> all sorts of tears. I was in a position where I could work from anywhere and I was in a position where I didn't need to work too much at all at that particular time in my life. I had my own company, I had some employees, and I had some contracts that were happening without a lot of my effort. So I ended up 
sell like selling and getting rid of everything. I, I was renting at the time. I got rid of everything other than three boxes of my stuff. I got rid of all my furniture, my books, even that was a big one for me. You know, my dish, like everything, uh, save my cat and a, a few boxes. And then I went traveling for most of the year. So I, because I, I just needed to be alone. I could not wrap my head around making my life work without Tristan in it on a day-to-day basis. And I couldn't, I didn't know how to be. I really did literally did not know how to be in this world in a day-to-day way. And so for me, taking myself away was a way to say, I, I'm not doing this day-to-day. I, I refuse. I'm, I'm going away. I'm doing something different and I'll grieve by myself. And I did. I think for me, that was a good choice. It, it gave me the space I needed to truly grieve, to cry does not even cover it. It's like whatever it is that we do as we are just releasing all of that and and processing it and thinking about it and thinking about where do I go from here. I had no idea how I would go from there, but I knew it would be based around hope. Hope is something that, um, again, gratitude, acceptance, and hope. Um, I learned in recovery, I was not prepared to give that up. I knew I needed to return to hope. I just didn't know how I would do it. So after about eight months, I was ready to come home. I had a whole nother, I'd gone, I had been to Portugal for six weeks. I came home over Christmas because it was, it, it felt required. And then I was in Vancouver Island for a while. I was in Costa Rica for a while and I was going to go to Bali, but I um, didn't. I came home instead. And I was doing all of this on a budget, the same amount I was spending on rent here. I was spending there. So, so it wasn't any particular great expense. I was living super cheap. But I, when I, I knew I needed to come home because I felt like I was missing so much. My granddaughter was growing up. You know, my, my kids were moving on and I was realizing I, I had left them in grief without me for all of this time. And, but I worried I was still feeling fairly numb. I wasn't sure how I would even be a mother to my daughters or a grandmother to my granddaughter. But I, I, I came home and I think, and clearly I could, I absolutely could feel I, you know, I love my kids. My family remains the world to me. And then I began began the process of really processing it. And I think that's where um, my writing really came in. When I began writing the book, I actually had no intention of it being a book about grief um, because I had not actually, I don't think I had experienced it enough or processed enough to, to have learned what I had of value to share at that point. What I wanted to write a book is I wanted to write a book about parenting a child in addiction. And I wanted to write a book of hope. Those were the two things. Like it was my my experiences of being a parent in that circumstances and a way for me to share hope to other parents in that circumstances. And I never intended this to be a book about grief. I was writing a book as a way to remember and honor Tristan and to share my experiences as a parent of a youth in addiction in a way that could bring hope to others. And as I was, of course, I was processing my grief as I was writing through it. I was, I was processing my grief of Tristan in his addiction. That, that was a part of the grief that, you know, I mentioned earlier, we don't have a chance to share very much. And I needed to end the book with a note of hope because that was always the the purpose of it. The early draft actually just took uh, the story from the time of Tristan's early teenage years to his death. And I had some beta readers read it and they had some wonderful things to say about it. But they said, this is not a book of hope. I they don't, they don't want to end on, on his death. And I said, I don't want to end on his death either, but that's what happened. And they said, no, that's not what happened. Like, look at you, look at all of these 
years that have passed since he died. And that's important to share too. And it wasn't really until I was getting that feedback from the people who were reading the book that I thought, oh, yeah, there there are things I learned in grief and there are things I want to share. And I think I think part of that is because my first reaction with big feelings is to hold them close to me. And it's not so much that it's not so much that I keep them isolated as much as I just I need to understand them myself first and I I understand internally. So at that point I was able to say, yeah, you know, you're right. I have learned a lot of things through grief and there are a lot of things to share. So I continue to write. And I think you know, writing for me is a way to process. So I learned a lot about what I learned through grief, through writing about it. And one uh, that's one of the things I learned is that I don't know how people process their grief or how they can make sense of it if they don't let it out of them somehow. You know, for the first couple of years, I was keeping it all in and I didn't know what I had learned. I didn't know what I was experiencing because I hadn't let it really come out. So it was through the writing of it that I really got to understand it. And I have, you know, met other people since that have done similar things through writing songs or drawing art or doing macrame in one case. Like it doesn't matter what it is, but I really do believe you need to get it out of your body by expressing it somehow. Talking to a therapist, I'm sure is a a great way to do it. But for me, my therapist was um, my keyboard and and writing it out. Yeah. And that's that's interesting how you found your way to what works for you, right? Like traveling was your way you thought would maybe help it. And it did in some ways, but it didn't do maybe what you expected it to do. And then being around family opened some new windows and opportunities to feel. And then you had writing the the book and just writing it out. And I think, you know, I hear that a lot. Um, that wasn't my way of processing. It's great to hear that there's so many different strategies to get it out of you in, in one way or another. It's interesting when you say it like that. It's like I, I ran away, which I did. I ran away <laughs> by myself, right? Because what I felt I needed was to just kind of cocoon. Um, then I needed to reconnect with my family. Then I needed to write it out. And then what has happened since then is I have been able to flip that and be of service. Like, you know, um, I've led uh, Healing Heart uh, grief groups that have helped other families who have lost loved ones to drug harms. And I have written more explicitly things that are aimed to be helpful to others. So I think that there is a, a a processing to the point where you're able to then give back um, and, and contribute and be of service to others, I think is a natural progression that that is also a healing progression, right? It's like, you know, I, I think one of the things that has healed me most is being able to help others. And when I hear from others, that's something that I have um, whether it was through my facilitation of the grief group or whether it has been through people who have read some of my writing coming back to me and telling me how much that that has helped them, that has touched them to the core and made them feel not so alone or helped them to understand something in a in a way or helped them to find beauty and joy. Like that's a lot of what I write about is how grief is not, you know, we all, those of us who live in a land of grief and we will always be living in this land of grief um, does not mean we don't also la- live in a land of beauty and joy and fulfillment and uh, wonder and ambition, all of the other things that life has to offer. It just means that grief is also there, but it is not there at the exclusion of all of the beautiful things in life. That's well said. I like that. I like how you sort of mentioned the the beauty of service at a certain point in your grief journey and how beneficial that can be. You know, I, I know that myself, right? Just how it's amazing, like the connections you make and, and how you can impact people just through your personal experience and what you do and how you talk about it, right? And you're talking about it through a lens of hope and through a lens of wanting to be a sort of in a space where people can feel heard 
and seen in a time where many people don't. And, you know, that's really the sad thing about when it comes to grief, because a lot of people in the culture will step away and not a lot of healthy spaces to just be able to be um, with what they're feeling and what they're thinking. And so I think that's great. And I thank you for doing that work just in the world, because we just need more people like that. And like one of the things that I love talking about and raising awareness of is dreams. And so I'm really curious on your journey, either before he died through his addiction or after he died, did you have any dreams that you sort of that were memorable to you or any patterns that you saw? Um, absolutely. Um, certainly when he, when he was alive and in recovery, I did have recurring dreams about him relapsing and, and dying. Um, and I continued to have nightmares after he died for a period of time, one of which I wrote about in the book. And, and I, can, I can get back there, but but the happier dreams. So I kind of have like three categories of dreams. One is nightmares, which are certainly real. And, and thankfully, they have subsided. I haven't really had any probably for a couple of years now. Um, but the first, like I said, the, after he passed, um, I had quite a few nightmares and I was having them before he passed as well. And then there's the everyday dreams, you know, where I think of him just um, hanging out with me, you know, in my dreams. And I think that that's my subconscious just not not bringing him into my world, but he is in my world, right? So he is reflected in my dreams. And interestingly, he's usually a child kind of between the ages of four and 10 when he appears in my dream. And I don't know whether that's because I feel like that's just a, a representation of an innocent, uh, joyful time for me or, you know, or, or what that is, but he's almost always a child um, in my dreams uh, where he's just hanging out as part of my dreams. And then there's the visitation dreams, and I've only had a few of those. And um, those are ones where I can touch him, I can feel him, I can smell him, he's telling me something. And the one that I remember most vividly occurred three nights after he passed. And he came to me, and I and I was surprised because he was there. It was like he was standing right in front of me, and I could touch him, and he was solid. And I put my hands around his face, and I could feel his like fuzzy fuzzy cheek fuzz and I could smell him like his scent is you know and he had come up to me he was kind of he liked to move he was always moving and he did these goofy dances and he had quite a, a good sense of humor and so he came up and he said mom it's still me I'm still me and, and and he said see and and he did this really crazy silly dance that he does and he was laughing and and then I held his face and so it was like mom I'm still me I'm still me see and then I held him close and he said, and then he said, I got to go now. And he, he backed away and he was gone. So that was kind of cool. And I have had at least two other dreams where I, that I would consider those visitation dreams where I could touch him like solidly. And I knew he, but I can't remember what it was as vividly. I'm really curious. So when are you saying like, I'm still me, did you have a spiritual understanding of the world prior or is this something where you're like an atheist and and this was like maybe kind of made you think and pause about like what what is what's going on here? No, I don't consider myself an atheist. I think I've been more agnostic, more spiritually inclined, but not not within a religious context. So, you know, I'm open-minded. I I'm I'm readily acknowledge that I do not know what happens after we die. Um I also know that I know strongly that it is healthy for us to believe that something happens, we die. It's better for us to process our grief. It's better for us to stay connected with our loved ones. So there are times where I choose to believe in life after death as a conscious choice. There have also been times where 
I have seen enough things and I've heard enough things to make me think, you know, there has, there is something there. There, like, there just has to be something there. And I've, I have felt those things. But when there's a period of time goes by where I haven't felt that as acutely, then I have to consciously <laughs> think about it. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very open minded. I do, I had more experiences of Tristan's spirit earlier on in my grief than I have had recently. But yeah, I do. There have been times where I either have actually known that that was Tristan in the spirit world talking to me directly. And there are times where I choose to believe that is. And there are times where I'm open minded. Maybe that was. So I I don't I don't really, you know, I haven't landed in one absolutely solid uh, perspective in terms of the spirit world. But um, that felt very much like Tristan coming to me and saying, hey, I'm okay where I am. Wow, it's really interesting on how these dreams can like shape our beliefs, and then there's also the this um, discernment of, of when it is quote unquote um, like how you take it as a visitation or not. Because some people will take the negative dreams also as a visitation, and so it's really interesting to sort of just see your perspective on that, and also the words. Like I always find the words that the deceased says in dreams are very powerful and, and very intriguing to me. Um, because they're usually short and he's like, I got to go. I'm like, where, where are you going? <laughs> it's like, but I'm like, I got to go. But yeah. it's so interesting how like they like whatever it is, like in those these types of dreams, they're they're short and they will say often like they got to go or I can't stay long. And you're like, I wonder what that is just for the, the griever in itself, like the grieving process. But if it is a spirit, I wonder, you know, why that is also too. So um, I think it's, it's a fascinating dream. And I'm glad sort of you had it and it was able to something that you can sort of showcase to sort of build in that spiritual kind of aspect that you said you're, you're playing around with. You just don't know, right? Like, I don't know. Everyone really knows, but like it, it keeps you in that field where it's like um, you're in that mystery a little bit yeah. as you move forward. So you skipped over the nightmares. I know it's not the most positive to talk about, but I think it's important to talk about because there's going to be other people who have nightmares that just want to sort of see maybe how you, how you yeah. had it, your experience, but also how you look at it now, given where yeah. you are. I think that, and especially I think for those of us who have lost our children to traumatic circumstances, whether that was drug use or suicide or murder, I mean, any sudden death of a child is traumatic. And I think nightmares are common and it's processing them. I mean, if it's okay, I, I will read one short passage from my book that is about a dream. And what was interesting to me, um, as you'll find out, is not not the dream itself, but what it meant to me in that moment. Um, in relation to my grief. And this this dream I know came up because this was when I was home over Christmas that first year, just four months after Tristan passed. And it was a very stressful time for me. Christmas is not a good time uh, for new grievers, uh, I think a lot of us. So here we go. A few days after Christmas, I dreamed I was searching for Tristan in a crack house, trying to find him, to bring him back to recovery, to save him. I knew if I didn't find him soon, he would die. Only I knew where he was, so it was all on me. In my dream, the crack house looked like a party scene from Breaking Bad. Emaciated bodies lying amidst garbage, people shooting up or half-heartedly having sex or just staring at me with vacant eyes. I walked over these bodies, desperately searching for Tristan. I stumbled from room to room, growing more panicked with every second until finally I found him. I reached out to where he lay in a corner of the room, his eyes gazing lifelessly at me, his body already cold. Pain exploded and I woke up. I sifted through the nightmare in search of reality urgently as if Tristan's life depended on it. 
Oh, I thought to myself, taking deep breaths to slow my pounding heart. It's okay. I'm okay. He's already dead. And that was the worst part. Not the nightmare itself. That wasn't so different from many of the night of the dreams I'd had. What scared me most was the deep feeling of relief I had when I woke and remembered that Tristan was dead. And then I felt anguish and guilt for feel, for being relieved. I spent most of that day in bed crying, feeling like a terrible mother. I thought that somehow I must subconsciously be relieved that Tristan was gone. Yes, some things seemed easier now than when Tristan was in the depths of his addiction. It was easier for me to manage my own pain than to watch him in pain. But that wasn't what my relief had been about. It would make sense in a way to be relieved that I didn't have to fear for him or try to save him anymore. But that wasn't quite right either. All day, I wrestled with that feeling of relief until I finally understood it. I hadn't been relieved that Tristan was dead in my dream. I had been relieved when I woke that I didn't have to live through his death again, that I hadn't somehow been swept back to the moment of his death. Instead, I was here months later, still in a sea of pain, but inching my way towards an unknown shore. That was legitimate relief. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, I like how you really went through the process of trying to figure out what that feeling was. It's like you really showed the emotional intelligence of yourself where you're not just like taking the first thing that comes to mind because usually that's wrong, (laughs) right? This is our initial reaction, but you actually sit with it and try to figure what it actually is that's going on within you Mm -hmm. um, that's being processed and just acknowledging the truth of that. And so it's really interesting to sort of to sit back and actually look at that and realize it's a relief that you don't have to live through his death again. And it really showcases the pain you would have went through because like, like to not want to relieve it again, it's just like, it showcases how much of a struggle that was and how much anguish you went through that you can't really speak on. You know, it's just one of those things that, yeah, you're numb, but there's a whole mess of stuff going on in there. And I think people need to understand like to be numb is like, there's serious pain. And yeah. for you to go through that, again and the body that almost like shut down as a a way to save itself to survive it's just like you know why would you so i think i think it's fabulous that you you shared that dream and really went through it to help other people understand maybe what they're maybe going through or if they have sort of some nightmares and but i'm also glad that they've stopped you know that's really a beautiful thing also because i sort of see that the the progress right like as we sort of integrate that loss and really understand it's more understand ourselves and, and our part within it I tend to see these dreams tend to be less negative and people tend to have these more positive dreams mm-hmm. moving forward. And I'm, I'm glad that these dreams continue to happen. What was yeah. the last maybe dream you had? Was it recently? Was it a couple of years? I know the last, the last dream that I can, like I said, he's, he's in my dreams fairly regularly, just as somebody, the last dream I recall was probably about a month ago. And, the, and he was a, he was a child. And I know I can't remember anything, everything to do with that, but there was, um, you know, my other, like all my kids were there as children and something to do with running around an old house and jumping out of a window. And I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it was, he was there and it was joyful and, you know, just kind of innocent fun. I think there's beauty in that, right? There's a lot of beauty in that, just having those feelings, seeing them. And it's, it's really interesting how you said like he's younger, mm-hmm. you know, you see him as a child, like, 
I wonder if that's just like a theme that parents would have if they had a death of a child. Because another thing I've seen with children, if they've died early on, like two, three, parents will see them as they age in their dream, which I mm-hmm. think is really interesting. But this is like the other way around. It's like you're seeing mm-hmm. them in a in a sense. But also when I call my mom, I know my mom sees me as like a ten year old. Maybe that's that's part. I mean, I I think I have dreamt of him is more kind of where he was at when he died or like you know but but the ones that I remember mostly are just yeah he's there as an innocent kid and having fun and but I think that was you know the essence of him and I think maybe so much of um you know his teenage years was colored through addiction which it gets complicated so I think that it was maybe just an uncomplicated joyful time yeah, no, it seems like it. Like, and it's really interesting to for you to share that too. So, yeah, I think that's yeah, that's, or at least that's that's what is represented through the dreams. I think to me, yeah, and it speaks to your soul and your spirit too of play. And that's one of those things I noticed with people who have children is that play is so important just for our own adult self because we tend to be so serious in nature and it gets you out of you know behind the desk stiff of, you know it's just like it's like you, they, they get you to play they get you to be creative and move your body in new ways and just like be free yeah and i think too you know um one of the people who was most important to me in in my grief and bringing me out not bringing me out of grief but bringing joy into my grief was my granddaughter who was three at the time Tristan passed. So, you know, she acknowledged the loss of her uncle as, you know, she was running to the playground and doing everything else. Right. So, you know, at, at Christmas, that Christmas that I still, you know, um, was not terribly present for, I was present for her because I couldn't not be right. She'd come and give me a hug and grandma this and grandma that. And, you know, in the same way, I think it's hard to hold fear and gratitude in the same space and gratitude wins. If you put that forward, it's hard to hold the pain of grief along with moments of joy. You know, you you can still be in grief, but joy becomes prominent when you've got a four-year-old granddaughter <laughs> running around having a lot of fun around you. So you just join in. I like that. That's just like good things of just emotional wisdom on how to balance yourself because you're not going to be able to take it away, but you can just balance it. So it's a little less hopeless. Cause a lot of times when you're in the grief, you think this is how it's going to be the rest of your life. There's no hope, but no, like they, it fluctuates and to be okay with that fluctuation. Those are different tools you can use to help with the fluctuation. So, wow. Great advice. So yeah. Thank you again. Like this is a really interesting conversation, but we're going to have to wrap up. One of the last questions we ask our guests is if you could have a dream tonight of someone who has died, uh, who would that be? And what would that dream look like? Of course, it would be Tristan. And of course, it would be a visitation dream where I could touch him and hold him and smell him. And he would say something to me, you know, let me know how he's doing. Comment on our lives. Let, Let me know that he, you know, he's there watching us. That's what I would, that would be my dream dream. Wow. That's beautiful. And so you want him as his age would be now kind of thing rather than as a baby? I will, well, yeah, always of him. Yeah. As, as you know, he was 21 when he passed. That's how I will always remember him outside of my dreams. I will always remember him at that age. And yeah, I just want to, I want to hug him. I want to feel him again. I like that. It'd be cool too. If you sort of even mentioned like your book and gave you a review. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be good. That would be good. I I I imagine he is proud. You know, and and I wrote a lot about Tristan, more about Tristan than I had intended because it is my story in my book. 
And a lot of people have asked me, what do you think Tristan would think about that? But, you know, knowing him and how invested he was in the power of sharing his story and in helping others through our storytelling, I think he would be radically proud of me. That's beautiful. No, that's really great. And it's good, good to know that too. And to realize you're walking around with that kind of belief about what you've done in your journey and what you're able to share about his to sort of bring more eyes to him and that he can still serve others, even though he's not here in the body. So exactly. thank you so much for just doing everything you're doing. And so is there any um, last words that you have? And also where can people find your book? Um, and where can they find you? Yeah, I think I think the last words I would have for people is just that there is always hope. You know, if you're if your child is still alive, there's hope for them. And if you are still alive, there's always hope for yourself, um, no matter what. You can find me on uh, kwagnerwrites.com or on Facebook or Instagram at kwagnerwrites. And the book is out through Douglas and McIntyre on September 9th in Canada. And it will be out in March 26, 2024 in the US and elsewhere. Wherever you buy books, it's available for pre-order if you're listening before that time. I like that. And it's going to be really nice for you to get that feedback from people when they do read it. Because I think that's just another way of serving. You get to sort of realize how you served and how your words impacted other people. So I'm looking forward to hearing back from you like, and just keeping in touch to sort of see you know, how the book works with your own grief journey and how you sort of see that process and any more dreams that may come afterwards. Absolutely. <laughs> So thank you again so much. I really appreciate having you today. Thank you. It was a lot of fun.